0: Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part seven of General Conference McNuggets. In part seven, we are continuing our foray through the general conference talks given in October of 2019. Once again, my goal is not only to give relief and solace and some degree of comfort to those sheltering at home during this worldwide coronavirus epidemic, but also to manage to get through talking about the talks in general conference, from last General Conference before we actually get to this coming General Conference, which begins in just two days. Today is Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. General Conference kicks off Saturday, April 4th of 2020, and I am looking forward to finding out what it is that the speakers there will be saying as they celebrate and commemorate the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's First Vision. Now, to be honest with you, I am starting to grow tired of general conference. Watching general conference, listening to general conference can be a fatiguing experience as can reading through all the general conference talks from October of 2019 or any general conference for that matter. And I am beginning to feel general conference fatigue. I actually already recorded an initial episode earlier today, which was 50 minutes long. But as I was getting into that podcast, I kept encountering what the scriptures would call a stupor of thought. I actually toyed with the idea of not doing a podcast today and just letting this day slide because I've been doing so many podcasts over the past two weeks. But as you can tell, I did not go with that inclination. Instead, I am back here behind the microphone trying once again to record this podcast. I think one of my problems is trying to find something in every general conference talk that is worth commenting on. And frankly, not all of them rise to that level. So what I am going to be talking about today are three conference talks that were given in the Sunday morning session of last general conference. Those three talks are given by apostles. Elder Gong, Elder Uchdorf, and Elder Stevenson. The other talks may have their own merits and be good enough in their own right. I just don't find them interesting enough to take your time talking about them. But first, I want to read you this email from a listener that I received last Friday, March 27th. I'm not going to give the name of this individual because, once again, I don't know if that would be okay. But I will read the body of this email, omitting both his name and my real name, as a matter of fact. It starts this way. Greetings from the great state of Texas, RFM. I wanted to email you and thank you for your great podcast and especially the number of episodes you have posted lately. You see, I went back and I read this email and I said, he's thanking me for the number of podcasts I've been doing recently. So I've got to do another one today. I came across your podcast a year ago and fell in love. Prior to hearing your podcast, I wasn't a fan of many of the popular Mormon podcasts, but the academic approach you take to Mormonism is exactly what I was looking for. I fortunately left the LDS Church more than 10 years ago, but I've always found Mormon history and theology Fascinating, so I still continue to study it quite heavily. So, this listener has something very much in common with me. Additionally, I still hope to get some family members out of the LDS church, so there is an ulterior motive there, apparently. I hope you are doing well and staying safe in the great state of Washington. I lived in Washington State for almost 10 years as I completed my PhD at Washington State University. And here I will leave out what it was that he majored in. I loved it up there and liked it much more than Texas, which is something you might be familiar with. Well, absolutely. I can understand what you're talking about there. I feel the same way. No offense to any of my listeners in Texas. And then he goes into a paragraph of similar interests that he might have with me related to my sideline of work as an attorney. So I won't go into that either. He ends it by saying, please keep up the good work and spreading the good word. Well, thank you. I will continue spreading the good word, and I'll try and do good work. And in fact, I'm so committed to doing good work that I'm taking the extraordinary step of throwing in the trash bin 50 minutes of recording that I did earlier today and once again, setting forth to try and do a podcast for Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. Let's go to that first talk in General Conference, which was given by Elder Gong. Now, Elder Gong's talk is titled Covenant belonging. There has been a marked increase in the use of the word covenant in general conferences over the past decade. Now, a lot of that probably has to do with one of President Nelson's favorite phrases, which is the covenant path. He says it frequently and because other leaders look up to him as the prophet and the mouthpiece of the Lord, they feel that they're bound to duty to repeat that phrase as often as they possibly can. And to talk about covenants, the covenant path, how important it is for Latter-day Saints to make covenants and then to keep those covenants. And Elder Gong here, if I were to do a word count, actually in his talk, which I have not done, I suspect that he uses the word covenant as much as, if not more than any other speaker in general conference. By the way, there is a website where all the talks from all the general conferences that have ever been given up to the present are collected and you can do a word search at that site. And I went to that site a number of weeks ago because I was wondering, am I just imagining this, that the word covenant is being used much more frequently, it seems to me, than it ever has been before. And I did a word search for the word covenant and I found out that no, I wasn't imagining it. Indeed, the word covenant is being used in more and more general conference talks, really than it ever has. And I think that there may be a significance to this because we also know that in the past decade, more members are leaving the church than ever have left before. And I wondered if there is perhaps a correlation between the increase in the use of the word covenant in general conference and the increase in the number of members leaving the church. I think there may be an underlying reason and purpose for the emphasis on covenants because it seems to me that the way covenants are talked about in general conference is that we make covenants when we join the church, when we're baptized. We renew those covenants at sacrament every week at church when we go and we make even higher and more binding covenants in the temple. And the idea is that we have made covenants to follow God by which in the LDS context means really follow the leaders of the church and do what it is they tell us to do and live by every tenet, principle, policy, program, and commandment within the LDS church. And that when people start leaving the church, they are breaking the covenants that they made to do those things. So in this way, it is possible to see this emphasis on covenants as a subtle or not so subtle form of psychological manipulation or coercion on people to say, you need to get back to church, you need to be doing what it is we tell you to do because you promised, you made a covenant that you would. And if you don't do that, then you are a covenant breaker and you don't keep your word. Now it is possible for people who have left the church to look at that and not feel guilty so much as feel insulted. Because from their point of view, it is easy to see that they made those covenants, they were baptized, they went to the temple under the belief that the church was what it claimed to be. and They came by that belief honestly because they believed what the leaders told them about the church. Then through study, through information, through research those members find out that actually the leaders of the church were not being completely honest with them. That there are many things about the church, negative things about the church, that the leaders of the church not only did not tell them, but even in some instances took active steps to hide from them. And in that situation, such members who have left the church can look at these leaders and say, you know what, I'm not bound by promises I made based upon incomplete or inaccurate information that you gave me. And this situation is only exacerbated by the fact that the speakers in General Conference are still not being straight and honest and upfront with the members of the church and yet they continue to want them to come back to church and they seem to be using these talks, these multiplying talks about covenants and covenant path in order to try and send the message to straying Mormons that if they don't come back then they are oath breakers, they are covenant breakers, and they do not keep their word. So once again, I see this as a subtle way of shifting the blame from the leaders of the church for not being upfront and honest about the history of the church, for not being upfront and honest about who they are and what their spiritual gifts are and are not, and how many times they actually have seen Jesus versus how many times they have not. They are taking that blame and that responsibility which I think sits upon their shoulders and shifting it over to the members of the church who leave the church when they see that the leaders are not what they claim to be and that the church is not what the leaders claim it to be. But in the course of his talk and in the course of talking about covenants, Elder Gong says the following thing. I'm going to read this paragraph because it sparks some thoughts in me that I want to share with you. Here's what he says. The Book of Mormon speaks by ancient and modern covenants. See, there's the word covenant again. The Book of Mormon speaks to you who are the children of Lehi, children of the prophets. Your forefathers received a covenant promise that you, their descendants, would recognize a voice as if from the dust in the Book of Mormon. That voice you feel as you read testifies, you are children of the covenant and Jesus is your good shepherd. So we can see just in that brief paragraph, he used the word covenant three times and he does the same thing throughout his talk, which is why I think that he probably may have set the record for the number of times he used the word covenant in a single general conference address. But it was here when he was talking about the descendants of the people of the Book of Mormon, the children of Lehi. Notice he doesn't use the word Lamanites. That term has fallen out of fashion in the church. And even though he's talking about what we would normally consider to be Lamanites, he doesn't use that expression. Well, what this reminded me of and what I wanted to share with you and what it prompted in me is some thoughts I have regarding the church's history with the Lamanites, i.e. with Native Americans, because really it's a fascinating history. It's sort of a love-hate relationship that the church has with native americans and i want to start with the fact that when the white colonists came from the old world to the new world the last thing they expected to find in the new world were people because from their point of view, the Old World is where the Garden of Eden had been originally. These are a Bible-believing people. The Bible shapes the way they view the world. The Old World is where the Garden of Eden had been. And that's where all the people were. That's where all the descendants were. That's where all the events in the Bible happen. And there is no reason, based upon an understanding of the Bible, that they would think that after they had built boats and sailed all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to a new world, that there would be people here. And yet there were. So, based upon their understanding of the Bible, it was very common and very common in Joseph Smith's day and in his community and in his environment to hear people say or read things that people had written that explain how it is that there were people here on the American continent. And that is because these were the Lost Tribes of Israel. These were the people who were taken captive by the Assyrian Empire. In 721 BCE, when they swept down from the north and took captive the northern kingdom of Israel and took those people away into captivity, and then they become lost to history, at least history as far as the Bible is concerned. Therefore, they became known as the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel. Well, now we've come over here to the American continent. There are people here. Hey, these must be the lost 10 tribes of Israel. These must be Jewish people or descendants of Jewish people who have obviously become degenerated, lost a lot of their Jewishness, and are now represented in the different tribes of American Indians that they found here. And as I say, this was a common belief in Joseph Smith's day. He would have understood this idea just as everybody else in his community understood this idea, whether they believed it or not, and I think a lot of people did believe it, it made sense to them. Now, the Book of Mormon comes forth, it's dictated in 1829, published in 1830, and the Book of Mormon gives a little bit of a twist on this. The Book of Mormon, looked at from a macro view, from a 20,000 foot view, which is what I'm going to try and do here, gives an origin story for the American Indians. And everybody who's listening to this knows what that origin story is that the American Indians are the degenerated descendants of a group of people who left Israel around 600 BCE, right before the Babylonian conquest. So these are not the lost 10 tribes of Israel. These are a separate group who left Jerusalem about 120 years after the lost 10 tribes of Israel became lost. But nevertheless, they have that Jewish heritage. So as I say, the Book of Mormon does a variation on that theme, and yet it is still within that same theme that the American Indians are descended from Jews. But the Book of Mormon doesn't stop there because we know that the Book of Mormon has this sort of love-hate relationship with the American Indians. And part of the hate part is that the Lamanites are the ones who are generally designated in the Book of Mormon as being the evil ones, the lazy ones, the wicked ones, the ones who are always fighting against those darn good righteous Nephites. And as a result of that, they end up being cursed by God with a dark skin. And later on in the Book of Mormon, we find out that if the Lamanites repent, then their skin will become whiter like the Nephites. They will become more delightsome. So these are all negative aspects of the description that the Book. of mormon gives to the lamanites now that's the hate side of it on the other hand there is a love side to the lamanites because the book of mormon is written specifically for the lamanites and we find that in the title page where it says that the book of mormon is quote written to the lamanites who are a remnant of the house of israel and also to jew and gentile so it doesn't say it's written exclusively to the lamanites but it is written primarily to the lamanites same idea in the book of Enos. Now, Enos is a very short book. Everybody here knows the story of Enos. Enos is weighed down by sin. He goes out into the woods to hunt animals and he decides he's going to pray. And he's going to pray for forgiveness of his sins. And this story sounds very much like the 1832 account of Joseph Smith's first vision. Just as Joseph Smith went out to the woods in that version to pray for personal forgiveness of his sins, even so Enos does the same thing. And Enos prays all day long and into the night. And finally, the word of God comes to him and tells him, hey, your sins are forgiven. And he feels great about this. So he starts to pray for his people, the Nephites. And he wants them to be forgiven and them to be preserved by the Lord. And the voice of the Lord comes to him and says, hey, look, if they're righteous, I'll preserve them. But if they're wicked, I won't. Basically hinting that they're not going to be righteous. They're going to be destroyed, which is what happens at the end of the Book of Mormon. But then... Enos, undeterred, now starts praying for the Lamanites. These are the people who are the enemies of his people at this point in the narrative. He is praying for his enemies, which is a wonderful thing. But the voice of the Lord comes to him about the Lamanites now in verse 13, and this is where we get to the message I wanted to point out. Here's what it says. And now, behold, this was the desire which I desired of him, that if it should so be that my people, the Nephites, should fall into transgression and by any means be destroyed, which, of course, is what happens, and the Lamanites should not be destroyed, which is also what happens, that the Lord God would preserve a record of my people, okay, so that's the Book of Mormon, that the Lord God would preserve a record of my people, the Nephites, even if it so be by the power of his holy arm, that it might be brought forth, and here's the important part, that it might be brought forth at some future day unto the Lamanites, that perhaps they might be brought unto salvation. So this is the purpose of the Book of Mormon, even within the framework of the Book of Mormon itself, that it is being created and preserved and will be brought forth in the last days, specifically for the Lamanites that perhaps they might be brought unto salvation. Now, in the one sense, there's a very much a paternalistic attitude here that the Lamanites have to be brought back into Christianity, i.e. the restored Christianity that Joseph Smith brought forth. So, as I say, that's somewhat paternalistic. And yet, I can't help but acknowledge the fact that the Book of Mormon is saying that this entire project is written primarily for... The Lamanites, they are the ones for whom this book is written. And according to the Book of Mormon later on, that's not the only significance that the Lamanites will have in the last days. There are two other primary things that are gonna happen. First off, the book is gonna be brought forth to the Lamanites and many of them are gonna be converted back into Christianity. They are gonna be reminded of the covenants so there will be a great missionary work and a successful missionary work among the Lamanites, among the Native Americans. And while this is happening, The gospel is also going to be preached to the Gentiles, to the white people who are now in America as well, in the newly formed United States. At least newly formed as of the time the Book of Mormon came off the press. But not all of those people who are called Gentiles in the Book of Mormon, not all of those people are going to convert over to Mormonism. And there is going to be a great destruction that is going to be visited upon those Gentiles who do not convert to Mormonism. And how will that destruction be visited upon them? It's going to be visited upon them by the Lamanites. The Lamanites are going to go out and destroy all the white people who did not become Mormons. And while this is going on, all the righteous people, the righteous Lamanites and the righteous Gentiles are going to be gathered to a central place and are going to build a city. It will be the city of the new Jerusalem And not only that, it appears from the Book of Mormon that it's the Lamanites who are going to take the lead in that project of building the New Jerusalem. And the Gentiles will assist them in doing so. Now this may sound strange to you, but this is all contained in the Book of Mormon and primarily it's contained in 3rd Nephi. It's part of the teachings that Jesus gave to the Nephites when he was visiting them after he was resurrected. And specifically, these teachings are contained in chapters 20 and 21 of 3rd Nephi. Now it is typically very difficult for Mormons to make heads or tails out of what it is that Jesus is saying here. At least I will say it was difficult for me. And the reason why is because Jesus is prophesying of things that are gonna happen in the Americas shortly after the Book of Mormon comes forth, and yet those things did not happen. So as a faithful Mormon, we want to read these prophecies and believe they happened, so we want to take these prophecies and make them match with history as it really occurred. But it's very difficult, if not impossible, to do that with these prophecies because they flat out did not come to pass. The Indians did not destroy the Gentiles in American history. Now, we can always say that that's something that's going to happen in the future, but it doesn't really appear very likely that at some point in the future, the Indians are going to rise up and destroy all the white people in the United States. That just doesn't seem likely. It seems like this is something that was supposed to happen within the generation that the Book of Mormon came forth, and all this stuff was supposed to happen in short order. Let me read some of those passages to you so you can see what it is I'm talking about. First, let's go to 3rd Nephi, Chapter 20 where Jesus says to the Nephites, remember that's the context, he is addressing the Nephites. And he says this in chapter 20, verse 14, and the father hath commanded me that I should give unto you this land for your inheritance. And I say unto you that if the Gentiles do not repent after the blessing which they shall receive, after they have scattered my people, then shall ye who are a remnant of the house of Jacob. Now mark that line because The Lamanites are described as the house of Jacob here. That will be important later. Then shall ye who are a remnant of the house of Jacob go forth among them, and ye shall be in the midst of them who shall be many. And ye shall be among them as a lion among the beasts of the forest and as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he goeth through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces." and none can deliver. So this is the prophecy that Jesus is giving to the Nephites, that it is they or their descendants who will do this to the unrepentant Gentiles in the generation that the Book of Mormon comes forward. You can see that obviously they are going to be a destructive force and the instrument used by God to inflict retribution upon the unrepentant Gentiles. And this is not the only time this is mentioned in the Book of Mormon. If we go to chapter 21, he continues along the same lines, where he says, starting in verse 11, Therefore it shall come to pass that whosoever will not believe in my words, who am Jesus Christ, which the Father shall cause him to bring forth unto the Gentiles, see that's the Book of Mormon, and shall give unto him power that he shall bring them forth unto the Gentiles, they shall be cut off from among my people who are of the covenant. And then verse 12, and my people who are a remnant of Jacob, remember there's that phrase that applies to the Lamanites, shall be among the Gentiles, yea, in the midst of them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through both treadeth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver. So that passage, which is taken from Isaiah, is repeated twice in the Book of Mormon, once in 3rd Nephi 20 and once in 3rd Nephi 21 as being applied to the Lamanites, the American Indians, who will go forward and destroy the unrepentant Gentiles, those Gentiles who do not accept the message of the Book of Mormon. So there's the destructive component about the role that the Lamanites or the Native Americans are to play in Book of Mormon prophecy. But then comes the gathering and the building of the city of the New Jerusalem. And as I said, the Native Americans will take the lead in that and the Gentiles will only assist. Here's what it says now, chapter 21, verse 22, the word of the Lord. But if they will repent, that's the Gentiles. If they will repent and hearken unto my words and harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them. And they shall come in unto the covenant and be numbered among this, the remnant of Jacob, unto whom I have given this land for their inheritance. And they shall assist my people. This is verse 23. And they, the Gentiles, the repentant Gentiles, and they shall assist my people, the remnant of Jacob. Remember that's the Lamanites they shall assist my people, the remnant of Jacob, and also as many of the house of Israel as shall come, that they may build a city, which shall be called the new Jerusalem. And then finally in verse 24, and then shall they assist, it says that word again twice, assist, and then shall they assist my people, that they may be gathered in, who are scattered upon all the face of the land, in unto New Jerusalem, and then shall the power of heaven come down among them, and I also will be in their midst. So then is the second coming, where Jesus comes down and he dwells among the people in the New Jerusalem who have been gathered in out of the land after the Native Americans, i.e., the Lamanites, have gone forward and destroyed all the unrepentant Gentiles. And the Gentiles who do repent will assist the Lamanites in building this city of the New Jerusalem. Then Jesus comes, and that's the winding up scene. Okay, now. Having established that this is what the Book of Mormon apparently seems to predict, we do note that as soon as the Book of Mormon came off the press, Joseph Smith sought to put into effect the vision that is described in the Book of Mormon for the Lamanites. Because the Book of Mormon is dictated in 1829, it comes off the press in 1830, Joseph Smith establishes the church and organizes it in April of 1830. But before that year is out, Joseph Smith sends missionaries halfway across the United States from New York to Jackson County, Missouri. And the reason that he sends them there is because they have to go and preach in the borders by the Lamanites. That's the expression that's found in the Doctrine and Covenants. So the whole purpose of this missionary effort is to do what the Book of Mormon predicts, which is, it was written for the Lamanites. It is supposed to gather in the Lamanites back into the fold and remind them of the covenants of their fathers. And Joseph Smith is actually going to put this into effect, or at least attempt to, by sending missionaries a thousand miles away from New York, halfway across the United States, to the borders where the Lamanites live, because this is the point at which the United States stops and the frontier begins. Jackson County is on the west side of Missouri. And beyond that is Indian country. And now later, once again, just trying to hit the highlights, what Joseph Smith is going to do is he's going to receive a revelation from God that the new Jerusalem is to be built. And where is it going to be built? It's going to be built way out there in Jackson County, over there by where the Indians are. And I use that phrase only because that's the phrase they used then over where the Native Americans are, over there where the Lamanites are. Why? Because in order to fulfill the vision of the Book of Mormon, they have to be converted to the gospel and then they have to build the new Jerusalem and the Gentiles will assist them. And of course, unfortunately, in the process of this, they also have to rise up and destroy all the Gentiles who did not join the church. Now, this is where history stops matching up with the prophecies in the Book of Mormon because that never happened. Instead, the mission to the Lamanites is not a huge success. In fact, the Indian agents do not like the Mormon missionaries over there talking to the Indians and preaching their gospel and telling the Indians the role that they're supposed to play in these last days, and therefore they get kicked out. So they can't really preach to the Indians anymore. The Mormons still plan to build the city of New Jerusalem over there. That's the plan. But they end up getting kicked out of Missouri. And in spite of their best efforts, including going to the President of the United States, Martin Van Buren, to seek for redress to see if they could be put back upon, their lands. That's, of course, after the effort by Zion's camp in 1834 failed to do what it was that Zion's camp was supposed to do and was promised by the Lord that they would do, which was to redeem the land and get the saints back on their lands in Jackson County, Missouri. It fails. So the saints try everything they possibly can, whether military or political, and they simply cannot get back to Missouri. Instead, they end up building a city in Nauvoo, which lasts for about five years before Joseph Smith is killed. And then a couple years later, the saints who follow Brigham Young end up moving out west to Utah. Now, it is clear from the history of the church that they considered the Lamanites to be the Native Americans with whom they were dealing. And I'm not an expert on the subject of what happened between the Mormons and the Native Americans when they went out to Utah. I understand it was a bit of a troubled situation. There were some positive things to it. There were definitely some bad things to it. Maybe the best thing that could be said is that the Mormons probably got along with the Indians better than any other group of white people did at the same time and period, which may not be saying a lot. And yet the Mormons continued to see the Native Americans in Utah and surrounding regions as being the Lamanites. Well, if we bring that story of the Mormons up to the 1960s, we know that this idea of the Lamanites being converted to Mormonism had not completely died, and that indeed Spencer W. Kimball was an apostle whose passion was to see that prophecy fulfilled and to make it come to pass. And we know that in the 1960s and 70s, there was a program that was put into place called the Indian Placement Program, where Native American children were placed in the homes of white Mormons to be brought up as mormons they would go to school with the mormons they would go to church with the mormons and the hope was that eventually they would become converted to the church through this program and the prophecies the book of mormon gives about their conversion would be fulfilled indeed this is a time when stories are being told about how native americans are joining the mormon church and as a result their skin is becoming lighter that they can see the curse being removed from them and this was talked about in general conference and i read one of those quotes a number of episodes ago but this was going on when i joined the church in 1978 and it basically centered around the navajo indians it seemed that the church was having the best success among the navajo indians and i think that those were predominantly the navajo children who were being taken into Mormon homes as part of the Indian placement program. This was the time period in which there was actually a traveling group of Native American, I think they were mostly Navajo singers and dancers, who were called the Lamanite generation. This was a time when we heard the message frequently in general conference that the Lamanites would blossom as the rose. And yet that program as well ended up not being very successful, but as part of that program, as part of that program, they found a Native American youth who was part of the Indian placement program, who grew up and became very faithful as a Mormon and ended up being called as a general authority. And here I am talking about George P. Lee. George P. Lee was the poster boy for the success of the Indian placement program because he became not only a faithful Mormon, but he became a general authority in the church. Now, the problem with George P. Lee is that he was a very, very faithful Mormon. He was very obedient to his leaders. That's how he became a general authority. That wasn't his problem as far as the church was concerned. His problem was that he read the Book of Mormon. He knew what the Book of Mormon said about the Lamanites. He knew that the Book of Mormon gave primacy of place to the position of the Lamanites in the latter days, and he promoted that Book of Mormon message, and he promoted it unflinchingly to the leaders of the church above him, who were, of course, white who did not really appreciate being reminded of the Book of Mormon's message about the Lamanites in an age when the church was run and governed exclusively by white men and not by Lamanites. So by this point in history, because of the development of the church and the way things happened and the way it was governed by white men, the prophecies in the Book of Mormon about the position the Lamanites would hold came to be discounted and ignored, and this was a cause of great friction between George P. Lee and the other leaders of the church. And frankly, the friction got so much that in 1989, George P. Lee was excommunicated because he wouldn't back down on his position, supported by the Book of Mormon, that the Lamanites were supposed to be number one in the last days. The Gentiles could help, they could assist, but Lamanites were supposed to be leading the charge. And one of the things, among many grievances that George P. Lee had with the leadership of the church, and by the way, he wrote them down in two very long letters, which were published in Sunstone Magazine, I believe, a number of years ago. And you can find that on the internet, but they're very long. I looked at them. If they weren't so long, I would read them here on the podcast. But he has a lot of grievances to set out. And one of the grievances he has with the leaders of the church has to do with that passage from 3 Nephi 21 that I read to you that the Lamanites are supposed to take the lead in the building of the New Jerusalem and the Gentiles assist. It seems very clear from the text in the Book of Mormon that that's what it's saying. And yet this was a point of controversy because, of course, the white people who now lead the church don't like the idea of assisting the Lamanites in building the new Jerusalem. No, the white people are going to build the new Jerusalem. The Lamanites can assist. You see, that's the way they want to see it. And in fact, Bruce R. McConkie weighed in on the issue in his book that was published. I think it was published posthumously. It was published in the mid-1980s. I had read it. It was called A New Witness for the Articles of Faith. And in that book, he has a passage where he acknowledges this very issue that was raised by George Peeley, but he discounts it and wants to reinterpret it in terms of, well, frankly, white supremacy. I don't, <laughs> maybe that's the wrong term. Uh, maybe it's the right term, but the supremacy of the white members of the church over the Lamanites in building the New Jerusalem. And here is this passage, okay? Here we have it from Bruce R. McConkie, a new witness for the Articles of Faith, page 519. This is what he says, an occasional whiff of nonsense goes around the church acclaiming that the Lamanites will build the temple in the New Jerusalem and that Ephraim and others will come to their assistance. You see, just like it says in the Book of Mormon, but he calls it a whiff of nonsense. Of course, anybody who remembers Elder McConkie will know that he was not Lamanite. He was white. He goes on, this illusion is born of an inordinate love, for Father Lehi's children and of a desire to see them all become now as Samuel the Lamanite once was. Is he responding directly to George P. Lee even after George P. Lee was excommunicated? Possibly, but here's what he says about this idea. The Book of Mormon passages upon which it is thought to rest. See, he knows about the passages in third Nephi chapter 20 and 21, but he's going to reinterpret them. The Book of Mormon passages upon which it is thought to rest have reference not to the Lamanites, but to the whole house of Israel. The temple in Jackson County will be built by Ephraim. Now that's interesting because nothing in the Book of Mormon says that. The Book of Mormon says it will be built by the house of Jacob, which is defined in the Book of Mormon as being the descendants of the Nephites, i.e. the Lamanites in the last days. But Bruce McConkie cannot allow that interpretation to stand, so he will reinterpret that passage against what the passage actually says and throw in Ephraim, which is never mentioned in the passage at all. The temple in Jackson County will be built by Ephraim. By the way, that's Mormon code for the white people, for those of you who aren't old enough to remember that. The temple in Jackson County will be built by Ephraim, meaning the church as it is now constituted. Okay, so with all the white guys at the top, including Elder McConkie, This is where the keys of temple building are vested, and it will be to this Ephraim that all the other tribes will come in due course to receive their temple blessings so here we can see how far mormonism has come from its initial inception and from the book of mormon itself the book of mormon gives priority of place to the lamanites it's the whole reason that the book of mormon is written the book of mormon gives the role to the lamanites not only to destroy the non-mormon gentiles but also to take the lead in building the city of the new jerusalem joseph smith takes specific actions in order to make those prophecies come to pass with very limited success in fact maybe no success at all really to speak of but in the 1960s and 70s that hope is still alive and the indian placement program is instituted george p lee is the poster child for the indian placement program he goes on to be a general authority he knows what the book of mormon says about his people and he promotes that to the white leaders of the church the white leaders push back george lee does not back down he gets excommunicated and now elder McConkie publishes a refutation of the Book of Mormon by reinterpreting the Book of Mormon and changing what it actually says so that actually the white people who are in charge of the church will be the people, the tribe of Ephraim remember, will be the people who build the New Jerusalem because they are vested with the temple key. So they will build the temple in the New Jerusalem and ostensibly the New Jerusalem itself. The Lamanites can assist them, but that's as far as it goes. As opposed to the Book of Mormon, which says exactly the reverse, the Lamanites will build it and the white people will assist them. So it is in this context that we once again return to the talk by Elder Gong, where he says, The Book of Mormon speaks by ancient and modern covenant to you who are the children of Lehi, children of the prophets. Your forefathers received a covenant promise, That you, their descendants, would recognize a voice as if from the dust in the Book of Mormon. That voice you feel as you read testifies you are children of the covenant and Jesus is your good shepherd. But obviously, that's as far as he's going to go, and no longer are we going to talk about the prophecies of Jesus for crying out loud, of Jesus in the Book of Mormon, about all the other things that the Lamanites are going to do in the last days, because frankly, they haven't happened, it didn't pan out. White people took over the church because the Lamanites didn't join, and so the Lamanites or the Native Americans have had to take a subordinate and secondary role within the church. And I suppose from the church's point of view, they look at George Peeley as a disaster that they took a Lamanite, they promoted him to general authority, and look how that turned out. Okay, so now at this point, I would go on to the other talks that I mentioned in the introduction, the talk by Elder Uchdorf and the talk by Gary Stevenson. And I will tell you that I did go over those talks in some detail. In fact, in too much detail. And what I ended up recording was dreck. My comments about Elder Uchtdorf's talk were dreck. My comments about Elder Stevenson's talk were dreck. And then I went and I talked about President Nelson's talk at the end of the Sunday morning session. And that was really dreck. So I am not, repeat, not going to reproduce those comments here. In fact, I have deleted them. They are in the garbage can. And the reason for that is that my commentary on those talks does not rise to the standard that I have here at Radio Free Mormon. Our standards may not be high, but darn it, we have standards just the same. I will give you a thumbnail sketch though of each of those three talks just to be fair and because I've already read through them and made a lot of notes about them. Elder Uchtdorf's talk is based upon the story The Hobbit. His entire talk is an extended parable of how the story in The Hobbit applies to Latter-day Saints. He describes how Bilbo Baggins ended up leaving the Shire to go on great adventures and how it is important that we do the same. Now, this struck me as odd at first because typically one would look at the Mormon Church as the equivalent of the Shire from which Bilbo Baggins left to go on his great adventures. There were no adventures for him in the Shire. The Shire acted like a shield and a cocoon to him from the world and the dangers in the world, i.e. the dangers that would provide those adventures, up to and including a certain dragon. And in this way, the Shire most closely represents, from my point of view, the LDS Church or any other high-demand fundamentalist religion within which the members are shielded from the outside world and warned against going out into the outside world because of the dangers that lurk there. And yet, Elder Uchtdorf manages to turn the story on its head by saying that not only should we stay in the Shire, that all our adventures will be in the Shire, and that if Elder Uchtdorf lived in the Shire, which he does, he he would be yelling at Bilbo as he was leaving the Shire to get his ass back in the Shire where it belongs. Because even though he is using the Hobbit as his template, his message must remain the same that we stay in the Shire. We stay in the boat. The world is a dangerous place and it's no place for Hobbits, nor is it any place for Mormons. Going on to my thumbnail sketch of Elder Stevenson's talk, it is a talk that deals once again with the threadbare theme of warning the members of the church against being deceived by people like me. Beware of the internet and social media where you can get information about the church that will cause you to doubt. Listen to the prophet's voice, listen to the leaders of the church, and then you will be safe, then you will be happy, then you will have joy, joy, joy. And finally, President Nelson's talk at the end of the Sunday morning session, you know President Nelson talks a lot in general conference. He talks more perhaps than any other president of the church in my experience. But he gives another talk at the end of the Sunday morning session. And this is the kind of talk where he basically gets up there and he gives a litany of all the good in the world that the church and members of the church are doing to people who are not members of the church. And I will tell you that the thought that struck me is that after he gave this talk in October of 2019 was when we found out because it was leaked to the public, that the LDS Church actually has a 100 billion dollar bank account. And it occurred to me that President Nelson, as president of the LDS Church, is one of the handful of people on the face of the entire earth who knew about the existence of that 100 billion dollar Enzyme Peak account at the time he was giving this talk. And now that I know about the existence of this account and everybody knows about the existence of the account, when I compare the 100 billion dollars in that account, to all the aid he is bragging about the church giving to other people, it frankly seems piddling by comparison. So I'm glad that the LDS church does good in the world. I'm glad of the contributions it makes to relieve human suffering. All these things are good things. It's just that when you know they have that much money that was hidden at the time and hidden for a very good reason because they didn't want the members of the church to know about it, money that was originally donated to the church by the members and was increased by investment, When you know about all that money they actually have and did have even while this talk was being given by President Nelson, it makes you wonder, couldn't you do maybe, I don't know, a little bit more? So that's all I have for this episode. That covers the Sunday morning session of General Conference tomorrow in the final episode in this series. We will cover the talks that were given in the Sunday afternoon session of General Conference October 2019. Until then, Make sure you wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.